I believe that he is a man of God and that uh, you will be uh, one that you will enjoy getting to know as your pastor. And so the next few weeks, uh, one of the things that I add to my agenda is meeting with Brother Jeff and beginning this transition process. And so this, this will be a, a, hopefully a smooth transition and one that honors the Lord together. On September 3rd, we will both be present. That'll be Transition Sunday. I know that's Labor Day weekend for some of you. Uh, all I can say is, I'm not gonna, actually, I'm not going to say anything to that. <laughs> but uh, that'll be the day that uh, we officially hand the baton over to Brother Jeff. And uh, So people have asked me, how are you? I, I say I'm focused because if I allow myself, I can get a little emotional about having to say goodbye to you. But that's okay because it's good that Christians' hearts entwine around each other. That's a good thing. So uh, today we are in Mark chapter 2, and I want to speak to you, uh, teach this passage, because it is incredibly amazing that Jesus, I think this might be the only time in Scripture where Jesus acted on behalf of someone else's faith toward someone in need. So let me read the passage, and would you join me as in reverence to the Lord by standing? Beginning at the first of the chapter. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. We don't really know whose house this is. It's not identified, but it's important to the story. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And so when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic, paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, speaking of the four men, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. You know, the, the, the original language, you may have a seat. Let me just draw your attention to verse 12. The original language here is very colorful. And in our, our translations read something like, they were all amazed. Well, the original language, it says, they were absolutely beside themselves with amazement. <laughs> and it makes me ask the question, when was the community beside itself with amazement at what was happening among the people of God? That's what I want to talk to you about today. Desperate 
faith. The, the, the text of God's word highlights the faith of these four men as they bring their friend to Jesus, and we have some things to learn from them. If Jesus is this impressed with them, then we have some things to learn about what it means to be this desperate to get people to Jesus. It makes me ask the question, am I, are we, as followers of Jesus, absolutely desperate to see people get to the place where Jesus can touch their lives? That's the question that brings me to this passage. And you have an outline in your bulletin that seemed sufficient to me, therefore we're not using PowerPoint today. But number one, the first thing I see about these four men is that desperate faith is a convinced faith. Here is a man with whom these four men have some sort of relationship. We're not sure what it is, but the fact that they knew each other and cared that their paralyzed friend get in front of Jesus is quite apparent from the passage. And somehow they had heard about the power of this young rabbi from Nazareth. We don't know how they heard that Jesus created a big stir everywhere he went, and certainly word about him had gotten around. Somewhere along the way, they became convinced that they needed to get their friend in front of Jesus. Desperate faith is a faith that's convinced that people have to come to Jesus. It's also intentional. Desperate faith is an intentional faith. If you say that you're concerned about people coming to Christ but never do anything, is that real concern? Is it? Not really. But intentional, uh, but desperate faith, the kind of faith that Jesus applauded here is intentional. It's intentional. Now, when we say intentional, what do we mean? Well, it means coming up with a plan. Simple or complex, a plan, when you are desperate, when you are intentional, a plan begins to take shape in your mind. It it doesn't have to be complicated. In their case, it was each guy take a corner, pick it up, and let's go. (laughs) That's the plan. But see, desperation is born out of conviction, and conviction leads to actions. Intentionality also means exerting energy to bring people to Christ. We can't just feel compassion in our hearts. We ought to do something about what we feel. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that sometimes we don't see people come to Christ simply because we're not willing to put forth the energy that's necessary for it to happen? When you think of business, most of us are in business, it's intentionality that makes our businesses successful. You can't have a long marriage without being intentional about it. Can I have an amen from a married person? (laughs) Intentionality is what causes objectives to be realized. So without intentionality, in proclaiming Christ to the lost, whoever they are around you in every context, you know what happens to churches? who lose their intentionality, they become maintenance-focused. Just paying the bills, making sure we have enough offering, making sure that uh, our programs are staffed, that we maintain a status quo, that's maintenance mode. It could also be that churches fall into a smorgasbord mentality. What programs do I like? Where 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 am I and my family 
best ministered to. And not, this is not always wrong. I'm not saying that. But when that becomes the priority, when that becomes the focus, then it becomes wrong. But a faith that knows that Jesus is people's only hope does something intentional. The church can't function without intentionality. If, every, if, we, if we lose our intentionality, we're like an orchestra that forgets that the conductor's in front of them. <laughs> you know how beautiful an orchestra sounds? I, I can tell you, there's a few things in life that I enjoy more than just hearing a beautiful orchestra and every section playing its individual part. They're not playing the same thing, but they're playing their individual parts and together by the direction of the conductor, it comes into focus as a beautiful piece for the ear to enjoy. But in the church, if we lose the focus of Christ being the only hope for people, if we lose that, then we tend to, to digress toward other priorities. And we are like the orchestra. We're like an orchestra who says, I don't really want to listen to the conductor anymore. I'm just going to do my own thing. What would happen? Well, first of all, you lose all the harmony. You lose the purpose of an orchestra. And in, in fact, you substitute chaos for design. Did you know that's where a lot of churches are? The desperate faith functions with intentionality. It makes a plan. It exerts the energy necessary. It energizes the plan because we believe, we believe that the saving work of Christ is for all people. Do you believe it's not his will that any should perish? Do you? That's, this, is, this is when you respond. I want you to stop for just a moment and consider who the people are around you in your individual context with whom you either are being intentional or need to be. I hope you are thinking of your children. I hope you're thinking of grandchildren. I hope you're thinking of coworkers and neighbors and friends, people that God has placed around you. It doesn't matter if they're easy to get along with or not. You know, the ones that are the most difficult to get along with need Christ the most, probably. <laughs> are we pursuing them? Are we being intentional? Is our faith, do we believe that Jesus is their only hope to the degree that we pursue getting that person to a place where they can hear about Christ? Because desperate faith is a convinced faith, and it's an intentional faith. And thirdly, it overcomes obstacles. When we think about being a personal witness, we also have to ask ourselves, how, how much does it take to discourage me from speaking of Christ in the world? Well, I want to draw your attention to these four men and how they couldn't get discouraged. They had some obstacles to overcome. The first one is the physical obstacle. There's a a house here. It's a private home. There's a crowd, and they can't get to the door. Does that stop them? Do they come up, and they see the crowd, and they say, oh, it's just a bad day. Let's try it a different day. No. Plan A isn't going to work out, so they come up with plan B on the fly. What's plan B? Take the house apart. <laughs> so that physical obstacle. There's also a social obstacle. They're about to interrupt the teacher, the rabbi. They're going to make quite a disturbance when they start digging through this, this 
earth, uh, hardened earth surface and undoing, disassembling the roof piece by piece. Can you imagine Jesus inside the house teaching? Now, this is not a surprise to him. He's actually orchestrated the whole event by his sovereignty. But inside, and people are trying to listen, and suddenly the ceiling begins to chip away, and, and, and people are, what in the world? This, it has to take a while as well. And besides, the guy's lying down on a pallet. You've got to put, make a pretty big hole to make this happen. And they're going to interrupt him. Would he, do the four guys wrestle with this? Is the teacher going to be okay with all this racket happening? You see, there's a, often a social obstacle with us, isn't there? Regardless of what the expectations of the culture and the community, we need to press on to get people in front of Jesus. There's a time obstacle as well. The four men had committed to the time it would take to execute their plan. We don't know what their days were like, what they had planned for that day, but they had to talk through their plan. They had to find enough rope to take care of what they needed to do. They needed the time to actually carry him to Jesus, dig through the roof, disassemble the timbers on the roof, and secure the pallet to the rope and lower him down in front of the teacher. This took a little bit of time. And it causes me to ask the question, are we willing to invest the time it takes to get people in front of Christ. To get them to the point where they can actually hear who Jesus Christ is and what he can do for their lives. Here's another a related question, brothers and sisters. Is an eternal soul worth the time commitment needed? There's also a financial obstacle. These Four men are going to inflict damage on someone's private property. <laughs> the homeowner volunteered his house for the day. I'm not sure he was in for all that was going to happen to his house that day. There would be expenses involved in returning the home to its original condition. There's also an emotional obstacle. Would the homeowner react to his house be take, being taken apart? You know, most of us face emotional obstacles when we're thinking about sharing Christ with someone. If you're like me, you think thoughts like this. Am I going to sound foolish in what I'm about to say? Will I offend? How will I even know how to start the conversation? Are you with me on this? Am I the only one that thinks this way? And, and what if they do want to talk? What am I going to do then? <laughs> Sure, we all feel that way. All of us do. But we need, here's what I've learned as I've gotten older. I don't need to listen to my own objections too long. Because if I listen to myself too long, I'll talk myself out of it. What I need to do is just remember that when God puts a situation together and he gives an opportunity, I just need to step into that and not worry about the obstacles. He'll take care of that. There's also a theological obstacle that these guys overcame. Mark says here that the scribes were reasoning with themselves. They were present. They were always hanging around trying to catch Jesus in his words. They, the four men, they didn't get distracted with non-essential religious arguments. You ever known somebody that just wanted to argue religion, the, the, the detailed points of religion? That just bores the tears out of me. I, I want to talk about Jesus. I want to see that Jesus changes lives. 
these four men didn't get distracted on that. Their, their agenda was much too urgent to worry about non-essential things. The scribes are more concerned about dissecting nuance, uh, religious terms and nuances of meaning. But these four guys had already come to terms with how essential it was to get in front of Jesus. And they held to that objective. It would do us all good as we desire to be witnesses for Christ in the world to learn from these four men because desperate faith is a convinced faith. It is an intentional faith and it is a faith that overcomes obstacles and it is also patient. Why do we say that? Because I want you to notice in the text that Jesus does something very odd. He has a paralyzed man in front of him and he looks at him and he says, your sins are forgiven you. The four guys didn't react they didn't say, Jesus, you don't really understand the situation here. <laughs> Doesn't that seem odd to you? That instead of addressing the physical need, he addresses a spiritual need. The point here is, is that Jesus, who is alive from the dead, he's not a dead God, he is a risen, living Savior, and he works the same way today. When he brings someone into your life, and you're trying to share what Christ means, and who Christ is, and how he can save that person... Jesus may actually move in a direction that you're not really ready for. There might be a physical need. But Jesus will always address the true need of the heart first. And the physical need may be the reason, the, the in incident that he uses to address the need of the heart. Salvation is always the greatest need. Jesus will always address that need first. Here's a man with a paralyzed frame. He actually exemplifies what people without Christ are like. He had no ability to help himself. People outside of Christ have no ability to come to Christ on their own. They have no ability to save themselves. This is a perfect picture. The, the, they, he had to have his four men bring him to Jesus. And the people around you and me have to have us to help them come. And only Jesus can offer the true remedy as God in the flesh. His power and ability to save had to be processed in the heart of the person. That's why it requires patience on the part of the people helping. And desperate faith is expectant. It's expectant. It is unquestionable in this account that these men's expectation was that Jesus would, in fact, work for their friend. It's revealing to me the way Mark puts this when he says, when Jesus saw their faith, their faith. The original grammar is, indicates that Jesus has the ability to look out over the entire situation from the point of them becoming convinced that Christ was this man's only hope to the point of actually setting the pallet down in front of him, he sees it all. Why do I bring that to your attention? Because, dear ones, Jesus sees everything you do to try to reach your lost friends for Christ. He sees all that you believe about him. He sees he, the slightest effort that you make to reach others doesn't go without his notice. When your heart is touched with a human need, he sees that. 
when you are moved to action to help that human need, he sees and he applauds that. When your efforts are hindered again and again and you overcome those obstacles and you keep going because you know that person needs Christ, he sees that and he applauds that. When you impatiently endure with lost people, waiting on God to do what only God can do in their hearts, and that is to bring life. He sees that. He fans the flame of that kind of faith. And as you believe, and as you proclaim, and as you love people, as you try to meet their needs and bring Christ to them, Christ sees your faith. And just like he looked at those four men, he looks at you, and he applauds that kind of faith because it is faith that is expectant that he and he alone will work because only he can. Jesus had the ability to give strength to these paralyzed legs. But he didn't want to deal with dead legs first. He wanted to deal with a dead soul first. And some of us see physical needs around us but I, I beg you, I implore you to look beyond the physical needs that you see to needs of the heart because the physical need may just very, very well be the, the, the thing that God uses to cause that person to see that they have a deeper need. Even if Jesus heals the physical need, the soul is all that will live for eternity. Do you believe salvation is the chief need of every person? Do you believe that this morning? You can say yes out loud. <laughs> it's, it is. People's souls need rescuing. And if this church is going to prosper, it's going to prosper as people understand that this is a place that believes that Jesus is our only hope. And as we give that hope to other people, God will bring them here to be nurtured in the faith and strengthened because of his presence here and it's the kind of faith that he applauds. Amen? Let's pray.